0: Welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts. We want to share with you that Oral Max Facts family is growing. So let's give a shout out to our new team members, Michael Moshenavov, our web developer, Woohoo! And, Woohoo! and our Insta social media contributor, Ramtin Dasgir. We are You're always... In? <laughs> huh? And then go Rampton. (laughs) Go Rampton. Yeah, exactly. We are always looking for other enthusiastic peers to join our effort to continue to learn during and beyond residency. So if you like to join us, just DM us on Insta or email us at maxfaxpodcasts at gmail.com. We also know that COVID-19 might have impacted your residency experience. This is why we want to tell you about a great opportunity for a one-year fellowship with Oral Facial Institution in St. Louis, Missouri. During your fellowship, you not only get to serve at a trauma level one, but also Oral Facial Institution is a center for TMJ and orthognathic surgeries. So Google them and email them if you're interested because they have a rolling application.
1: All right, let's get to today's episode now. Today we are going to talk about complications in orthognathic surgery. So when it comes to complications, we can essentially break it down into pre-op, intra-op, or post-op complications. And as you guys know, this list could be exhaustive, but here we want to keep this podcast short, succinct, and deliver key information in short amount of time. So today we'll focus on some of the most common complications of Laforte surgery, as well as some of the not-so-common complications, such as optic nerve injury. Mm -hmm. Miriam, let me ask you, you've done these surgeries quite a bit now, right? Yes. What are some of the complications you've run into?
0: I have run into alveolar necrosis, which has been the most nerve-wracking for the patient and myself to manage, but I
1: I I was (laughs) expecting you'd say
0: Yes. Yes, I have. Um, But I also have had to manage bad split and intra-op bleeding and um, relapse. There is a lot to be learned as you do these surgeries and provide these services for our patients. But for today's episode, we are going to talk about pathophysiology behind rare complications of maxillary surgery, such as cranial base injury and optic nerve injury, as well as the hemorrhagic complications of LeFort surgery and the differential diagnosis for the bleeding based on the timing that the patient comes back to you. Both of these topics are not only clinically relevant, but understandably also board's favorite for questions.
1: And uh, since, Miriam, you mentioned alveolar necrosis, we will record another podcast to talk about that complication as well. So today, let's start with a reported case in the literature. Here we go. A patient may show up status post Laforte surgery, complaining of periorbital puffiness, visual aura diplopia. What do you think is going on here? Clearly, mm-hmm. there's an optic nerve injury. But how did this happen and why? So let's look into this further. Optic nerve injury is among the rarest complications that's associated with Laforte one osteotomy, And we'll get into this a little bit. Uh, What are some of the more common
0: complications, though? As always, that's going to depend on what you read and how the study was done. A study published in Journal of Craniofacial Surgery by Dr. Kramer and a colleague in Germany, they looked at 1,000 patients, out of which only 6.4% of patients experienced complication. They found that 2.6% of patients had anatomical complication, such as nasal septum deviation, and non-union osteotomy gap. Excessive bleeding requiring blood transfusion was found in 1.1% of patients. Infection, including maxillary abscess or sinusitis, happened in 1.1%, and ischemic complications were noticed in 1% of the patient. Insufficient internal fixation was found in 0.5% of patients.
1: So as we can see, a lot of these complications are extremely rare. However, we do need to learn about them because when it happens to you, you should know how to manage it. And it's so 100%
0: at- of the time when it happens to you, it's 100%.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's look at this another study that was published in the Journal of Craniofacial Surgery by Dr. Eshkapur, uh, published in Iran or conducted in Iran. They looked at 114 patients. In this study, the most prevalent complication was hemorrhagic complication, such as arterial bleeding from descending palatine artery and epistaxis. Hemorrhagic complications were found in 5.25% of surgeries. Following this, the second most common complication was septal deviation and bad fracture. Septal deviation and bad fracture were grouped under anatomical complications, and they were seen about 3.5% of the times. Another way to look at complications in orthotic surgery is based on the movement of surgery. In Dr. Eshkipar's study, maxillary setback with, with infection presents the highest rate of complications compared to other maxillary type, movement types. So let's go back to the first case that we talked about earlier. Injuries to the cranial base, lacrimal duct, and optic nerve are extremely rare but there has been enough reported cases about these that it's worth a discussion here. Doctors Cruz and Santos in the Journal of Craniofacial Surgery published a case report with a review of literature in 2006. In this study, they performed a thorough review of literature and divided cranial complications into four categories. These categories were loss of function of the lacrimal gland, cranial nerve palsies, damage to the internal carotid artery, and loss of vision.
0: Let's look at all four of these in a little bit more detail and understand the why behind it. Lacrimal gland dysfunction, really. How could this happen? So in Lefort 1, which is our main surgery, we don't have to worry too much about it. Superiorly positioning of the Lefort 1 is not associated with the injury to the lacrimal apparatus. There have been some reports of transient epiphoria, likely due to the obstruction of Hasner's valve from edema, though. What about high Lefort osteotomy, you may wonder? Well, there was a study by Dr. Yuanol in 1992 in JOMS looking at the anatomy of nasolacrimal canal with reference to high osteotomies. In their stimulated model, inferior orifice of nasolacrimal canal was found superior to the high Lefort 1 osteotomy. However, there have been cases of damage to the nasolacrimal canal during high Lefort osteotomy. However, there have been cases of damage to nasolacrimal canal during high Lefort 1 osteotomy and quadrangular Lefort 1 osteotomy. The incidence of nasolacrimal abnormalities in congenital and craniofacial deformities has been reported to be as high as 30 to 40%. And to avoid this, we got to go back to anatomy.
1: All right, let's look at anatomy. (laughs) Okay, so as we know, the normal distance, or I guess we don't know, we should know, because this (laughs) appears on the boards all the time. The normal distance between the nasal lacrimal duct nasal opening and the nasal floor is 11 to 17 millimeters. Lafort 1-osteotomy should be performed 5 millimeters above the nasal floor. High Lafort 1-osteotomy is frequently made above the level of the nasal electromal duct ostium, and therefore, it's not surprising to see nasal electromole dysfunction in these patients if you're not cautious. So how do you avoid this? The medial portion of the nasal lacrimal duct can be protected by detaching the mucosa from the lateral nasal wall and placing a periosteal elevator between the mucosa and the lateral nasal wall as the osteotomy is accomplished. There's also another theory out there for damaged lacrimal gland. This may require a little refresher anatomy, so get your netters out or if you have any other favorite anatomy book and let's go over it as you listen to this podcast. A winky face. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, parasympathetic innervation of lacrimal gland has been asked on the boards. Anatomically speaking, sphenopalatine ganglia, also known as pterygopalatine ganglia, is the parasympathetic ganglia that supplies lacrimal gland. Digging into it a little deeper, paraganglionic parasympathetic fibers that innervate the lacrimal gland initially travel with the facial nerve, and this is joined by a greater superficial petrosal and vidian nerve to reach the sphenopelotene ganglia. Are you guys with me so far? I am. (laughs) If any of these nerves are damaged in their path through inferior orbital orbital fissure, it can impair the lacrimal gland function, causing dry eyes. So it's good to know that most of the reported cases had resolution within 8 to 24 months, essentially in two years.
0: So to summarize, some hypothesize that lacrimal gland dysfunction is due to direct damage to the nasal lacrimal canal, and others hypothesize that it's due to the damage to the lacrimal gland parasympathetic pathway. Okay, Riddy, really, since you brought up the parasympathetic ganglion, is worth mentioning the four parasympathetic ganglions that we have in- Head and neck, because as we said, they're Bohr's favorite question. Just very quickly, ciliary ganglion, as you guys remember, innervated by cranial nerve three, affects the ciliary muscles of pupillary sphincter. Pterygopalatine ganglion, as really just alluded to it, goes to lacrimal and nasal glands. Submandibular ganglions carries the parasympathetic innervation to the submandibular and submandibular gland through the facial nerve. And lastly is your otic ganglion that carries parasympathetic nerves to your product gland. That's it. Now you have that reviewed and ready for the boards. Woohoo!
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you may get asked on your oral boards and how are you going to go about managing this rare complication? Well, a lot of times you can address this with rhinostomy and if you are going to answer this on your boards, you better know how to perform it. So if you don't know how to do it, you go and review it, okay? Now, moving on to cranial nerve palsy. There has been isolated cases of cranial nerve palsies reported in the literature, especially abducens nerve have been reported the most with transient recovery within 2 to 18 months post-surgery. The explanation for this could be the inferior lateral location of the abducens nerve in the superior orbital fissure, just making it more vulnerable to damage if the fissure is involved. The most likely explanations are a continuation of the fracture from pterygoid plates upwards to the inferior lateral margin of the superior orbital fissure, causing injury to the nerve by bleeding or displaced bony spicules. Another explanation could be transmission of force to the nerve from using osteotome during maxillary disjunction.
0: That's an unfortunate complication that thankfully we don't see often. Another devastating complication is the damage to the internal carotid artery. There have been few reported cases, vascular accidents related to the internal carotid artery. Complications reported ranges from severe neural deficiency, such as nerve palsy and praises requiring balloon occlusion to retrobulbar hematoma requiring drainage and cantholysis. There is a really good study done by Wilson and al., published in Ophthalmic Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in 2000. In this study, they performed Lefort 1 osteotomy on five cadaver, and they measured the compressive load applied during pterygomaxillary disjunction and resulting fractures of the skull. In this study, they found that the maximum compressive loads during pterygomaxillary separation ranges from 22 Newton to 162 Newton with an average of 106 Newton. And this is where you may be wondering, what does even 22 Newton to 162 Newton mean in real life? 22 Newton equals five pounds per force or 2.2 kilogram per force. And for as a real life example, that would come up to wait near 15 avocado. I mean, we all know we can't find 15 ripe avocados in grocery store on average.
1: That's a lot of guacamole.
0: That's a lot of guacamole. But I just have a feeling that avocado is a good proxy for all the millennials out there to understand weight. But you know, I might be alone in this.
1: Oh yeah. Extra avocado, please. <laughs>
0: So, using the same math, 162 newton equals 16.2 kilogram per force or 36 pound per forces. Basically, this study says forces applied on the first operative side were significantly greater than the forces that needed on the second operative side. This is important because after you fracture your first pterygomaxillary disjunction, you need to be careful to don't apply as much force on the second side, because if you do, that's when we see the complication. So going back to this study, they found that in one of those five cadavers, there were multiple fractures of the lateral walls of the left sphenoid sinus. These fracture patterns could cause false aneurysm and arteriovenous fistulas. Displaced fractures may also tear the intimal lining of the adjacent blood vessels, causing occlusion of the vessels or the formation of the false aneurysm. More severe disruption of the vessel can also lead to hemorrhage or formation of, again, arteriovenous fistulas. False aneurysms are more apt to affect the maxillary artery and its terminal branches, whereas arteriovenous fistulas are more likely to involve larger vessel, especially the internal carotid artery. Multiple cases of carotid, cavernous sinus fistulas have been reported after the Ford 1 osteotomies, believe it or not.
1: Of course, this study has limitations because they didn't really measure the vertical force of down fracturing, which may also dissipate secondary forces causing secondary fractures. Well, let's look at the last complication, um, blindness, which is also very devastating. How can you cause optic nerve damage during the fourth one surgery? If we have not performed lateral osteotomy of your maxilla and try to down fracture your maxilla, the lateral nasal wall may fracture superior and inferiorly and fracture the orbital floor. Let's see another possible co- um, what is the another possible pathophysiology? Well, optomic complications associated with Lefort-1 osteotomy is an indirect injury through neurovascular structure from either traction, compression, or countercoup forces that are transmitted during the pterygomaxillary disjunction. In other words, Blindness after orthognathic surgery is usually not from a direct injury to the optic nerve itself, but more commonly, it's a result of an ischemic injury to the blood supply to optic nerve, either directly from a fracture extending through the orbit to the optic canal or foramen, or indirectly from swelling and edema around the nerve in the optic canal, disrupting the blood supply. Fracture cranial base is also another rare complication. A retrospective study of 5,000 cases reported this complication is less than 1%, which is obviously really rare. So how does this fracture happen? It is hypothesized that fracture occurs during septovomerian medial osteotomy. In the post-op, patients may present with symptoms of severe headaches and CSF rhinorrhea.
0: Okay, really, I think we beat the zebra enough.
1: I'm pretty sure that is not how the saying goes. <laughs> something like
0: that. (laughs) Uh, Let's move to some of the more common intra-op complication with maxillary surgery, and that is vascular complications leading to bleeding. Let's start with the intra-op bleeding that we may encounter. Here are some of the high yield board favorite question. What is the most common cause of bleeding following Lefort 1 surgery? That comes from your descending palatine arteries. And then they may phrase the question as, what is the most common bleeding in Lefort 1 surgery that is difficult to control? The answer to that question would be internal maxillary artery. So let's say you have completed your Lefort 1 osteotomy, down fracture your maxilla, and you notice a pulsatile bleeding. For the interop excessive bleeding, the packing was suggested as the first attempt to tampon out the hemorrhage and other principles of surgery come to play when it comes to controlling the bleeding source, such as direct visualization of the bleeding source and cauterizing the injured vessel to stop the hemorrhage. More aggressive treatment will be ligation of the external carotid artery and or angiographic embolization, perhaps as the last resort though. And if you're going to answer that on boards again, you best be able to describe how to perform a carotid cutdown. To prevent these kind of vascular injuries, we have to remember some of the foundational anatomy. So can you take us back to to those important numbers? Of course, I would love to.
1: The internal maxillary artery is normally positioned approximately 23 to 25 millimeters superior to the base of the junction of the maxilla with the pterygoid plates, and its average diameter is 2.5 millimeters. These are important numbers to know, not just for surgery, but also for the boards and also being able to avoid these complications. So when you are placing your pterygoid osteotome appropriately, which is usually 10 millimeters wide into the fissure, which is average 14.5 millimeters in length. So the fissure is 14.5 millimeters in length, and your osteotome is 10 millimeters for the protection. And it's usually directed anteriorly, medially, and inferiorly so that the vessel can be avoided. This is very important, not just for boards, but also real life. And these average measurements allow for a 10 millimeter of space between the instrument and the vessel. The greater pelletine artery is located approximately 20 to 25 millimeters posterior to the piriform rim. How can this be avoided? Well, there's usually a marking on the osteome a 430 millimeter mark, that usually helps you avoid severing the vessel. If there's a brisk bleeding, it will most likely originate in order of frequency from posterior superior alveolar artery. The greater pelletine artery, the pterygoid plexus, pterygoid muscles or in rare cases the terminal branches of maxillary and or internal carotid artery completion of the osteotomies and down fracture of maxilla is required in order to visualize the source and control brisk arterial bleeding if you identify the source ligation with hemoclips or sutures is required as these vessels can retract into the bony canal and then it becomes a nightmare
0: to ligate it or even a source for delayed bleeding What about post-op though? Let's say you did your beautiful, seamless surgery and then your patient shows up in the ED seven days after the surgery with epistaxis. What do you think is happening here? uh, There are two pathophysiological axes that can be hypothesized here. The more likely mechanism is the formation of false aneurysm. What is false aneurysm or pseudoaneurysm? It's basically a tear inside the layer of the vessel but there is no enlargement of the blood vessel layers. The second pathological pathway is the falling of the scar. Falling the scar can explain late bleeding, in this case for seven days. Going back to pseudoaneurysm, that's extremely rare and it's difficult to prevent it. So let's say that's unfortunately does happen to your patient. What are the treatment options? There is always the extreme ligation of the external carotid, or a compressive procedure, but this is an extensive procedure with post-surgical scarring. Rapid embolization with IR is the preferable technique. As you all know with this technique, the interventional radiologist will be able to identify the original lesion and treat it with selective embolization. Okay, we mentioned a few times that this is extremely rare. How rare is it? In a retrospective study of 1,124 cases over the course of 25 years, there has been only four cases of secondary epistaxis and all four required embolization.
1: So there are two types of preferences when it comes to descending palatine vessels. Some err on the side of preserving the vessel to avoid vascular compromises, and there are others who prefer to intentionally and prophylactically sacrifice the vessel in order to avoid the risk of immediate or delayed hemorrhage. So let's see, what is the evidence behind those who tend to prophylactically sacrifice the descending palatine artery? Well, besides the well-known Dr. Bell study, there's Dr. Siebert and his colleague also did a study on cadaver in 1997 where 10 fresh cadavers were used for the dissection. Standard latex injections were used with vascular filling of vessels to less than 0.1 millimeter in diameter. All cadavers underwent classic Lafort 1 osteotomies and latex injections was carried out by aortic cannulation. Results in all cadavers showed that there was disruption of the descending palatine artery and continuity of the ascending palatine branch of the facial artery and anterior branch of the ascending pharyngeal artery within the attached posterior palatal pharyngeal soft tissue pedicle. In this study, the authors basically confirmed the previous study by Dr. Bell et al. and Dr. Yu et al. that LaFort 1 ostetomized segment stay viable from collateral supply of blood from the ascending palatine branch of the facial artery and interior branch of the ascending pharyngeal artery when descending palatine artery is sacrificed.
0: But what is the evidence behind preserving the descending palatine artery? Do- uh, Dr. Nelson's study on 10 McAgee monkeys in 1977. Lefort I maxillary osteotomies were performed on these monkeys. The particle distribution method, which is a non diffusible radioactive microspheres, was used to quantitate the local blood flow before and after surgery. Significant reduction in blood flow to the osteotomized maxillary segment was noted in these animals, where the descending palatine transected. Those animals in which the vascular pedicle was left intact showed the decreased blood flow to the attached gingiva and alveolar bone, but palatal tissue blood flow was unchanged or increased. The results reinforced the precepts of the importance of maintaining an adequate nutrient pedicle when performing an orthognathic surgical procedures, meaning maintaining your descending palatine vessel, especially in your segmentalized maxilla. Suffice to say, it's a hot potato. I'm sure you already have your reasons to either sacrifice it, and perhaps you may change your practice as you experience a complication. Whatever your reason is, don't forget to share us with us on Insta. So that's all we have for you guys for the first episode of Orthognathic Complications. From rare to common, thanks for gigging out with us. (laughs) Woo-hoo. <laughs> and if you're studying for the boards good luck we'll catch you guys next time on oral max facts until next time goodbye g- goodbye <laughs>